Well, good morning again, church family. It is a joy to see you here on this Resurrection Sunday. If you have your Bibles, please open to Acts chapter 4. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. I see folks dressed up pretty nice. This is the one Sunday of the year you get to see me in a suit. So soak it up. All right, soak it up. My wife convinced me this morning to keep my beard, which I usually shave on Easter. And because I want to have a glorious, wonderful Easter, I obeyed my wife. And so, if you all uh, wish to see me beardless, you need to take that up with her. Um, I intend to have happy wife, happy life. Um, But please open to Acts chapter 4 as we look at um, what happens when the resurrection impacts Jesus' disciples on their mission. So this morning, again, this is Resurrection Sunday. For those that do not know, this is the day that changed the world and eternity For those who belong to Jesus, today is the most holy day on the Christian calendar. Some might think that is Christmas, but Christmas only matters because of Easter. Without Easter, what does it matter that a peasant was born in Bethlehem? The resurrection is, today is the holiest day on the Christian calendar. It completely changes how we view the past how we view our present, and how we view the future. It is the linchpin of the Christian hope. It is the foundation of our faith. So, the resurrection, without the resurrection, there is no such thing as Christianity. In fact, Paul unapologetically says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has been not raised, if Jesus is not raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Our faith is in the hope of the resurrection. So the resurrection of Christ is the reason that all of us here, the reason we can face pain and sorrow and uncertainty with rock-solid hope and joy. It's the reason. The resurrection gives us strength to persevere regardless of our circumstances because we know that our sins are forgiven We know that death has been conquered and our future is safe and secure. Now that is the hope that we need. Think about this. In an ever anxious and worrying world, many of you come in here this morning with anxiety and worry. Things that you might think that are out of your control. Well, Sure, there are lots of things out of your control. What the resurrection assures us of is that Jesus is always in control. And so, in the midst of our ever anxious and ever worrying world, Christ comes to us after the resurrection, and you know what his first words are? Peace be with you. Not worry or anxiety, but peace. Peace for our hearts and our souls. So in a world of doubt and unbelief and fear, Christ also comes and says to Thomas, put your finger here in my side. Put out your hand and place it here. Do not disbelieve, but believe. The resurrection proves that Jesus is Lord, that sin and death have been conquered, and that the future belongs to Him. And we have the promise that one day He will return and restore all things and make all things new, and He will never leave us nor forsake us. So this morning, we're going to look at Acts 4 to see how the resurrection empowered the early church, the early church for its mission to take the good news of the resurrection to the ends of the earth. And by the way, they do this in the midst of suffering and persecution. 
They do it regardless of the difficulties they face. So as you come to Acts 4, you have to remember that back in Acts 2, the church is filled with the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit falls on 3,000 believers there. And since then, in Acts 2 and now in Acts 4, the Holy Spirit is continuing to work as the gospel is spilling out of the church into the surrounding areas. So now in chapter 4, for the first time since the resurrection, since the, sorry, for the first time since the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus, the church is again facing persecution, just as Jesus had promised. Now that's not something that's fun-filled here on this Easter Sunday morning. I understand that, but everywhere the resurrection is preached and everywhere that people believe the gospel, Jesus promises that sooner or later, suffering and persecution will follow. This This is what Jesus said in John 15, just after his triumphal entry, which was last Sunday, Palm Sunday, right after Jesus marches into Jerusalem on the donkey and everybody's saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus takes his disciples aside and he says this to them. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Remember the words that I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And if they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So Jesus promises this. So let's look over at Acts 4, where we see, again, persecution rising. So here's what it says, reading verses 1 through 12 there. It says, and as they were speaking to the people, this is Peter and John speaking to the crowds near the temple. It says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Speaking of the person they healed. And Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man who's been healed, sorry, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. I want to give you three quick points as we work through our text together. First, notice resurrection hope. In the midst of persecution. Resurrection hope 
in the midst of persecution. When you look back at verses 1 through 4, what you find is that Peter and John has just healed a man who had been lame from birth on their way to the temple. He had simply, this man had simply asked for money. Give me silver or gold. He was a lame beggar, and this was normal for there to be many on the way to, for them to catch the attention of worshipers on their way to the temple and to beg for alms so they could have money to eat. They had no way to work, so this is the only way they could be provided for. There was no welfare system in place from the government. They were absolutely at the mercy and the charity of those who walked by. So they asked, they re, this beggar reaches out and says, he, uh, give me some alms. And Peter famously says there, he famously says back in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And lo and behold, the man's legs were strengthened and he jumped up and began praising God and created a tremendous commotion at the temple. As you can imagine, this man is running and leaping and following Peter and John in his joy. And so news is spreading all throughout the temple complex. And there are, the authorities are there and they hear it. And if you look there in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, it says that they came up and they were greatly annoyed. They're greatly annoyed because Peter and John are teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. That's what we're celebrating here this morning. They're preaching that Jesus is alive. And so why are they annoyed? Again, they're annoyed because their conspiracy to cover up the resurrection has not worked. There was a conspiracy in place among the leading officials in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Matthew. All right, There was a plot from the temple guard. That, that, sorry, over in Matthew, we learn of a plot to guard the tomb to prevent the disciples from stealing Jesus' body. Okay, That's why there was a large stone placed over the grave and guards were stationed there to protect it. But when the angels appeared, the guards fled and this is what the guards say in Matthew 28. Here's the conspiracy. It says, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. We went to the tomb, there were angels, and Jesus' body is gone. We were terrified. We left. And so it says, And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Basically, we won't let you get in trouble for dereliction of duty and abandoning your post. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the people, among the Jews to this day. So that's the conspiracy. So Luke tells us that it's the same priests the same captain of the guard and the Sadducees who arrest Peter and John because they're directly contradicting their account of what has happened to Jesus. So they throw Peter and John in jail, all right? Because it's too late in the day for a trial. Now look at verse 4. So they throw them in jail, but verse 4 gives this caveat. It says, but many of those who had heard the word believed. Those who heard the word believed. Now, that's back in chapter 3, verses 10 through 21. Peter heals this man, and then he's jumping up and dancing around, and all the crowd is astonished. 
And so Peter says, hey, why are you astonished that this happened? Jesus, whom you crucified and you rejected, this is the Messiah, the Son of God, and he has been sent to you, uh, to all of Israel, so that you can repent and believe and have faith in his name, and you can also have salvation. So that's what happens. Peter preaches to the crowds, and many of those believe in spite of those coming to disrupt Peter's message. So they believe the gospel message of Christ that Peter shared with them after healing the, ma- the, blind, the lame man. So despite the interruption and arrest, the Spirit of God works, and 2,000 men, it says there, are added to the church. Now, counting those who became believers at Pentecost, there are now somewhere near 10,000 Christians in Jerusalem in the first 50 days after Jesus is resurrected. And it is the hope of the resurrection that gives Peter and John boldness to proclaim Christ as Lord. Now, here's my point. Here's my point. No one can stop the power of God's Spirit at work. Not the Sadducees, not the leaders, of the, not the leaders here, not the temple guard. The Spirit of God is moving, and that's all you need to know. And if you read the rest of Acts, you need to know that all of the Roman Empire can't stop the moving of God's Spirit on God's people. It also teaches us, by the way, that the absence of persecution, the absence of it, isn't an indicator of God's blessing. Now, we can think that in our American church that is very comfortable. We can think, well, we're not under heavy persecution. That must mean God is blessing us. That's not the case. In fact, in many places around the world, it is the very persecution of God's people that is the very blessing of God to them. And that is why the church is growing like wildfire in places like East Asia and China and in places where the gospel was heavily persecuted. So maybe one day God will bless us again with maybe persecution so that the church can thrive under God's spirit. Now, that is my first point, that there is resurrection hope even in the midst of their persecution. But notice, secondly, the undeniable power of Jesus. The undeniable power of Jesus. When you look at verses 5 through 7, Luke says that the authorities convene the Sanhedrin. Now, that's the Jewish Supreme Court made up of 70 persons, 71 persons, and it is probably the exact same court that met some 50 or some odd days earlier to condemn Jesus. Okay? Notice their question. They say, by what power or name did you do this? Who gave you this authority and power? So what they're saying is that Peter and John have not been given the proper approvals or the proper authority or the proper permission from the religious and political leaders of the day to do the things they've been doing. So this moves simply from religious and political persecution in their arrest to now an official legal proceeding representing the state of Israel versus Peter and John. So they ask the question, By what a power or authority or name are you allowed to do these things? And Peter is happy to answer the question. Peter's happy to answer the question. Now remember, for those that have read the rest of this account, or those that have read the end of the Gospels through this, that should surprise you that Peter is willing to answer the question. After all, it was this same Peter who had rejected even knowing Jesus when questioned by a young servant girl of the high priest that he might have even walked by on the way to this trial. Little girl terrified him some 50 days earlier, and now Peter walks into the Sanhedrin, puffs out his chest, and is like, I'll answer your question. 
Same Peter. Now Peter courageously stands, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he gives them a sermon, just like the one he gave the crowd after the lame beggar was healed. Peter basically does this. He points in, the, in, the, in, the, in this, as, he's in the, as he's in the middle of this huge gathering, he points at this healed man, and then he starts preaching the name of Jesus. You see that guy? Jesus did that. Jesus did that. That was his entire defense. So the problem here, before the whole council, is there is a publicly healed man running around and praising Jesus. And they all knew this guy. In, in Acts 3, it says that this guy had been lame from birth, and he had sat there for decades asking for alms. They cannot deny the power and name of Jesus that brought this man healing. Now look at verses 9 and 10. This is what Peter says. He says, if we are being examined today in this courtroom concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed or how he came to be healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter's point, and what all of us need to know today, Peter's point is that Jesus brings wholeness. Jesus brings wholeness both to body and soul by faith. This healed man is a picture of the greater healing and salvation that comes to those who call upon the name of Jesus. And what's interesting is, this council is worried about the destructive effects of the name of Jesus on their rule. They're, they're, Jesus has always been a threat to their authority and rule. That's why they killed him. So they're worried about the destructive power of Jesus on their rule and their political power. And Peter's pointing out that the name of Jesus isn't destructive. In fact, it brings wholeness and peace to people. That's the point. It doesn't bring destruction, but wholeness. And that same wholeness and peace is what everyone apart from Christ is yearning for and longing for. When you sit alone at home in your bedroom and you think about your life and you think about the brokenness of this world and you think about all the anxiety and worry and unrest that is everywhere, you know you're not whole. You know you're broken. You know that there must be something more to this life. You know that this cannot be all that there is. And you cannot escape your own intuitions and your own longings and desires. And it is this wholeness that we see here that is promised in Christ that all of our hearts are ultimately longing for. As Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That God created us with this longing and yearning that can only be satisfied by a relationship with our maker. And that's what's happening. Now notice Peter's answer in verse 10. Peter gets really specific with this group and really personal. Really specific and really personal. They want to know by what name, and Peter's like, I'm happy to oblige. He says that this man is made well by the name of Jesus the Christ of Nazareth. So Jesus is specifically from this little town in Galilee. And you need to know that the leaders hate Galileans. Nothing good comes out of Galilee. They're outcast, considered not really even a part of Israel. They hate Galileans. Jesus even has a common name. 
That's all very offensive to him. Jesus is from a common little town with a common little name. And, Jesus th- and then Peter points out that you crucified. Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Jesus was such a nobody and such a menace that you killed him like a common criminal. That Jesus, the one you hated. But then notice the next line. Whom God raised from the dead. You crucified him and God raised him from the dead. Think about that. God took such a note of this Jesus of Nazareth that he raised him from the dead. God did that. And Peter is saying, we wouldn't be here in front of you saying this, and that man wouldn't be healed if that wasn't true. It is that Jesus, that Jesus. Now look at verse 11. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now that's a quote from Psalm 118, 22. And it's a word picture. You should get the word picture. These religious leaders are the builders in Israel, right? They're standing at a temple mount, which has huge cornerstones, huge. And they had looked at this stone from Nazareth, so they looked at this stone named Jesus, and they cast it aside as worthless, useless, and undesirable. We have no need of Jesus. Worthless, useless, undesirable. And he says, but the true architect, God himself, saw this stone lying in the grave, picked it up, and made it the chief cornerstone of the whole building. The stone that all other stones had to be plumbed by. This Jesus is the head of this building. He is the king of Israel, and though you rejected him, his name and power cannot be denied. There's a a a man who used to be lame right here, and all he can say is, hey, I sat at the temple for 30 years. I sat out there on the road for 30 years. Peter grabbed me by the hand. He wouldn't give me any money, but now I'm able to walk and jump and praise God. So we've seen here the undeniable power of Jesus. But notice finally the absolute exclusivity of Jesus. The absolute exclusivity of Jesus. Look at verse 12. Now this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. This is the real issue at hand in this text. The issue at hand is the absolute, universal supremacy of Jesus the Christ. Now, why do I say that? I say that because what the Bible claims here is that Jesus is the only way to salvation. That's what the Bible says. Confession of the name of Jesus is the only hope of salvation from sin and judgment and the only hope of future wholeness. Look at verse 12. We'll look at it word by word so you can hear Peter's argument. First, notice what he says. There is salvation in no one else. Now right here, a skeptic might say, really? 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 That's the claim? Really? That seems kind of narrow. Maybe Jesus is the Messiah simply for the Jews. There's salvation in no one else. Is that really what you mean, Peter? Other religions have their own messiahs. Maybe Jesus is just simply the messiah for the Jews. But Peter says here that there's no other savior. He says there's no one else who can save. There's salvation in no other. Notice second. Peter adds, for there is no other name. Remember, they, the whole thing hinges on by what name or authority did you do this? 
And Peter says there is no other name. There is no other name. Now, some believe that Jesus is the only source of salvation, but you don't actually have to know his name. That maybe you can be saved by Jesus at the end so long as you're a sincere Buddhist or Muslim or Hindu. We find this all the time in the religion called pluralism or relativism or postmodernism. Okay, by the way, that is the, that is the choice, that is the religion of choice of today's society. It's basically the idea that all religions and philosophies are equally valid. But notice what Peter says. Peter's clear. He says you must confess the name of Jesus. He says you must confess the name of Jesus. Peter is saying that there's no other name to call upon. That if you call upon another name, you're looking at the wrong source. He says that it is through his name, by faith in his name. Now Paul said it this way. So it's not just Peter. Paul says it this way in Romans 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the Lord Jesus. And he says, but how are men to call upon him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they've never heard? So Paul says that if they never hear, they can't believe. And if they can't believe, they can't be saved. And so they had asked Peter again by what name or authority they had been healed. And it's the name of Jesus. And you better believe that is not the answer they were looking for. That is not the answer they were looking for. And by the way, when, when Paul, who is persecuting the church here very soon, when he meets Jesus in Acts 9, and Jesus blinds him on the road to Damascus, and, and Paul says, Who are you, Lord? Jesus wasn't the name he was looking for either. But he met the risen Lord on that day, and it changed everything. It changed everything. Then notice third, Peter adds another qualifier. He says, for there is no other name, there is no other name under heaven. So there's no other name under heaven, including all peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations. It is, the explicit, it is explicitly universal in scope. No matter who you are or where you are from, there is no other name under heaven among all of mankind. And then look at that. He says, that's what he says, fourth. Peter says there's no other name under heaven among men. So there's no other name under heaven given among men that is all men, all mankind, universally, everywhere. And by the way, this is why the gospel goes out by missions. Because missions is universal in scope. Christianity makes universal claims. So there is no geographical, national, or racial identity tied to this. It is faith in the name of Jesus. And then notice lastly what Peter says. He says, there is no other name given under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved. We. We must be saved. All people, even the Jews. Do you notice that? Peter is including himself as a Jew in this verse among this Jewish tribunal. He says, whereby we must be saved. This is the exclusive and universal claim of Christ, and it creates problems for people. Listen, let me explain it this way. This exclusive and universal claim of Christ either creates converts or contention. That's the only two choices. It either creates followers or fallout. Those are your only two choices. It either creates repentance or resentment. It either, that's, what's, that's the only thing that can happen. This exclusive claim 
is directly tied to the resurrection. They are teaching this resurrection hope in the risen name of Jesus. Listen to what Acts says over in Acts 17. This is what Paul says about it. Paul says, God commands all men everywhere. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'm not a great theologian, but I think it means all men everywhere. He commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. So how do we know that all men everywhere should repent before they stand before God in judgment when they will be judged by this one man whom he has appointed, who is Jesus. And Paul says the assurance that you will stand before Jesus in judgment and the reason you need to repent is because that man was raised from the dead. So the linchpin of all of this is the resurrection. And I know there are people that are skeptics and I am, I am a skeptical person by nature. I, I am a doubtful person at heart. I am, I am a doubter at heart. And that's why it ultimately will come down to the resurrection. But you might object to me and say, well... This is Peter and Paul making these claims. Jesus didn't say anything like this. Maybe it's, just Peter and, maybe it's just Peter and John and Paul that are making these claims that Jesus himself would not ever make. That's a, that's a modern phenomenon in our culture where you'll have people that say, well, well, Jesus never said that. I don't trust what Peter and John said in the rest of the New Testament. Jesus didn't say that. Well, let me tell you here that Jesus did say that. Listen to what Jesus says in John 3.18. Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because they've not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. That's what Jesus says. And in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Now, you can be angry with me for being narrow-minded and exclusive, but Jesus said that. Your problem isn't with me. I'm just relaying to you the words of Christ. You, need to, you have to come to terms with that, that Jesus makes these exclusive claims. Jesus says in Matthew 11, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's an exclusive claim of Jesus. And after Jesus' resurrection, he says at the end of Matthew, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of all the nations. So, that's the issue. Now, let me conclude here with two implications. Just two implications and I'll be done. I appreciate your patience. Let me, let me give you some logic here. If the resurrection is true, that's a conditional statement. If the resurrection is true, and Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God, and if God has declared that the only path to eternal life is Christ, then you need to know Christ. You need to believe on Him. That's the logic of the New Testament. And there is nothing that does not make sense about that. If all roads are equal, which is what postmodernism will say, if all roads are equal then it doesn't matter what you know or don't know. It doesn't matter. But if it's true, then it is absolutely essential. And it is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. 
That's what the Bible says. That's the first implication. Second, the resurrection for believers, for us, for believers, the resurrection should fill us with faith and boldness for Christ's mission. It should fill us with boldness. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. I didn't read this yet. This is the last verse that I want to show you. Look at verse 13. It's what Peter says, what it says about Peter and John, what the authorities say. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, by the way, that's why they despise them. They're not religious elites who've been trained by uh, an official rabbi. They've only been in the rabbinical school of Jesus for three years. And by the way, that school was better than theirs. It says there, it says, They perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What made all the difference in this? They had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. Being with Jesus... The resurrected Jesus changed everything for this group of cowardly disciples who just days before were locked in a room out of fear. These religious leaders knew that they had been with Jesus and that they were not going to be able to shut them up. So hear me. This is the famous C.S. Lewis trilemma that Jesus is either a lunatic, he's either a liar, or he's Lord and you must make up your mind. He's either Lord or he's not. If all roads are equal... It doesn't matter if the government says you must confess Caesar as Lord. It doesn't matter. Or if another religion says you must acknowledge their prophet as the only true prophet. If all roads are equal, there's no problem with any of that. But, but hear me. If Jesus is Lord, and he is exclusively Lord, this is what explains the courage and boldness that's behind every Christian martyr who has died for 2,000 years because of the hope of the resurrection and their desire to share the love of Christ to the ends of the earth. They hold to Christ and nothing else. They're willing to suffer and bear reproach and walk through persecution. Why? Because Jesus is alive. And He is alive in His believers by His Spirit to this day. That's the point. This morning what you see is resurrection hope the undeniable power of Jesus that leads them to suffer for His name and the exclusive claims that Jesus makes. I want to close with Dietrich Bonhoeffer's quote from his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, Suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Following Christ means suffering because we have to suffer. It's part of walking with Jesus in this broken world. He says, Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. And in one of the letters drawn up in preparation for the Lutheran confession, he defines the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. That's how he defines the church. What is the church? The community of those who were martyred and persecuted for the sake of the gospel. That's how he defines the church. Not a group of people who just gather on Sunday mornings to sing a few songs and praise Jesus. Those who were martyred for the gospel's sake. And he says, discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called to suffer. This morning, we're going to have a, time, a brief, very brief time of invitation And it's the same invitation that Peter gave to the Sanhedrin. You see, lest we be too hard on them, 
Peter here offers them the same hope of forgiveness and eternal life that they had rejected in Jesus. They crucified Jesus some 50 days earlier, and Peter looks at them and says, believe on Jesus. Believe on Jesus. There is still time for you to come get out of the judgment that is coming. Repent and believe on the resurrected, risen Jesus, who is offering salvation to all, just like he offers it to this man who's healed. This morning, if you don't know Jesus, you're not whole. And you will not find wholeness anywhere in this life. I beg you to come to Jesus and find peace and forgiveness in his name. Hope in the resurrection. This morning, if you're looking for a church home, we'll invite you to be a part of ours if you so choose to join us. But this morning, would you stand with us? I'm going to pray and then we'll sing a brief brief hymn. Father, we pray this morning as we've gathered for the hope of the resurrection that the Lord Jesus would be exalted and that you would speak to our hearts now and awaken faith in us in the resurrection. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.